0: So, Mr. James Mark, a critique I often hear is that the sense of sacred music has been lost, and that critique is often attached to the use of particular types of musical instruments during the liturgy, the the use of um, musical compositions by the St. Louis Jesuits and others, and those type of hymns, and also the absence of chanting, such as the Gregorian chant. Can you walk us through whether that critique is valid or invalid?
1: Well, it's a very good observation and it's very valid. We're living at an interesting juncture in sacred music history, because as you and I are doing this interview, um, sacred music is being uh, relinquished in domains of society that formerly it was championed, and it's being preserved and even taught pedagogically in areas that we wouldn't assume cared for it. Speaking for myself, I have two degrees from two secular universities, one of them a state university, but both of them predominantly uh, stabbed by Marxist professors, and yet. That is where I first was immersed in a variety of sacred music forms. I especially credit my music history class uh, of where I had my first really in-depth study of Gregorian chant, because even in the secular setting, Gregorian chant is the basis of Western music notation. It is where we get and derived several of the compositional forms of the classical era. Even sonata form can trace some of its elements to the forms of the gradual and the Alleluia and the Introit at mass. And so it's required that it be taught in a, to- in a totally, not only secular, but I would say godless setting. It's required that students have a command of Gregorian chant. And that's also, it's in a university and conservati- conservatory setting that I first experienced some of the best, finest renditions of classical and Baroque orchestral mass ordinary settings. It wasn't until years later that 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 kind of music was, I was at the helm of making that kind of music in a Catholic setting in a directorial position at a parish church. What this illustrates to us is a very odd thing. Um, for one reason or another, which is a whole separate interview, the church, especially in America, has sort of relinquished its uh, role as a leader in sacred music Um, As it starts to dabble and experiment in these other forms that you kind of mentioned uh, popular forms and uh, more more uh, Just profane forms. Meanwhile, it's Treasury of sacred music is largely championed and preserved in secular settings so the critique is valid um, and and uh, Going forward we can talk about how all that happened.
0: I want to um digging there for a moment because you're saying that a person may more likely be exposed to sacred music what was traditionally as you say under the auspices or, or authority of the church but they may now <laughs> they're more likely to experience it in a secular setting versus in the church so I want to talk about that like is, is that true and also put together those two pieces that you put, you're, you're putting together the, the uh, what does it mean that the church have relinquished her authority? And now the secular universities are, are the bastions of, or the, or the spaces where this music exists. Like what's the consequence also of music existing that type of sacred music under their care, versus the care of the church.
1: Yes, so I have a very good friend of mine, a Protestant music major who when she completed her degree, uh, had never been exposed to the Catholic liturgy, had never attended a Catholic mass. She knew about Catholicism in a general sense, but uh, she shared with me her first experience coming into one and keep in mind, this is somebody who received a degree in music And uh, her expectation coming into a Catholic Mass candidly on a Sunday morning, was that it had at least some kind of resemblance to all the Catholic sacred music she studied in her degree. And then she came in and it was what you would expect. It was a typical uh, situation. There was a piano and a a couple of individual so-called cantors with microphones. There might've been some shakers Uh, and, and, the songs and the quality of the composition was kind of a schmaltzy character, the typical situation still today. So she asked me, like, what happened, right? Um, so yeah, you're, as you, it, it is true. You have a situation where uh, secular institutions and, and scholars have a higher priority in, in the mainstream of preserving the Catholic sacred heritage in, in terms of music than you do in the typical parish. Now, I say that with regards to those exceptional Catholic churches, which are more like maybe one out of every 50 that really do care and put priority into their music. But by and large, it is not in the typical parish church that the the church's uh, heritage is preserved, cultivated, and taught. So that's that. And then as as far as the second half of your uh, question, what was it? What does that mean? Oh, well, so, I mean, I remember a very good professor I had in my master's who greatly valued notational studies, studies of music notation. And she was from China and she was head of the ethnomusicology department, uh, Dr. Wang. She had very high, not only regard, but knowledge of Gregorian chant notation because it fit within her holistic study of how music has been notated across the, the globe and across time. And it, it revealed to me, it's like, wow, what a what an age we're living in. A uh, person from Asia, other side of the world, completely devoid of religion, she didn't practice a religion, uh, cherishes this entire genre for its value, um, its aesthetic value, its human value, and uh, the typical Catholic parish doesn't. Now, to be fair, to give kind of a why did that happen, what does this mean, I think a good place to turn is actually... Uh, in 1986, then Cardinal Ratzinger, now you know, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, uh, he 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 authored an article uh, called "Das Fest des Glaubens," the Feast of Faith, and it was a refutation to much of the experimentation that had been going on in the Mass uh, since the Council in the 60s had ended. So again, it's 1986, uh, pretty good remove from the Council, and enough time had lapsed that people were now at advantage to say, okay, how's everything going? All these new ideas, all these new experiments, how's it going? And he said, largely directed towards two uh, so-called liturgical experts from his uh, country of Germany, uh, uh, Rahner and Vorgrimler, uh, who had, who had uh, been instrumental in leading the authoring of a, a document to help bishops, at least in Germany, interpret the agenda of the council. And they had put forward this uh, very powerful and and, uh, sort of uh, infectious agenda of utility, utility and function, which was itself sort of a sister project, liturgically speaking, to the larger movement started by Walter Gropius of the Bauhaus movement in architecture. And so in a way, Uh, Rahner and uh, Vorgrimler are bringing the Bauhaus movement into the mass. And the result was that this music, which which once had been very uh, sort of uh, rich, was now being impoverished, to use then Cardinal Ratzinger's term, uh, to a very banal and, uh, but albeit admittedly, utilitarian and functional uh, form. So part of the reason that this relinquishment, or you might say a trade, has happened where secular universities and state universities with no religious affiliation are leading the charge of uh, artistically rich compositions is because the church herself sort of got infected with this agenda to reduce everything to either utility or function.
0: Now, some people listening to you, um, James may say, oh, I knew it, it was Vatican II. It was Vatican II is the one who took all the music away. They they tore out the altar rails. They they threw in a bunch of altar girls after they moved the rails. And they they destroyed the whole everything that we know. They're they're the the fingers on Vatican II because in their post-conciliar reforms, why we no no longer have the classic the sacred music. Is that is that. In, in in a category of critiques, and is that also valid, would you say?
1: Well, you, very good point. If I may recommend, though, especially to the listeners of the course, the tendency to trace all either calamity or victory, depending on your side of the issue, to a singular council that occurred in the latter uh, portion of the 20th century in Rome, in the span of about five years, is a temptation better left resisted. Um, because it presents a delusion, it implies a delusional uh, position to hold uh, that has two sides. So the first side of this delusion is what you might call the, the problematic side, and then the other side of this delusion is what you might call the diagnostic or solution side. So let's look at the first side of this delusion. Um, If Vatican II is to blame for everything, that implies that everything up to that point, the whole of the church's history up to that point, was more or less great, and that uh, everything was just going swimmingly. We had a sense of the sacred, reverence and piety were at an all-time high, and then All of a sudden, in the 60s, a bunch of hippies came along, got a little committee together, and in the span of about five years' time, ruined all of it. And uh, so that's, for perhaps hopefully obvious reasons, a delusional position to hold, because one need not look farther than the greater history of the church by just a couple of centuries to see the French Revolution and to see... A far greater uh, sort of travesty of calamity and destruction to the the liturgy, to the authority of the church, to the position of the clerics in society, to even the way governments are structured and and, and territory of the church, uh, to realize that it puts a shadow over this council in the 60s. The other side of the delusion, like I said, is the solution, uh, the presumed solution that it implies or the presumed diagnosis, okay? So if everything was fine and then Vatican II ruined everything, then the implied solution would be that all that reasonably-minded people like you and I need to do is call a bunch of our friends and our liturgical experts, in this case in the area of tradition, okay, the Usus Antiquior, medieval and antiquarian studies, uh, and all the constituent music forms of those rites, like Ambrosian and Mozarabic, Parisian and Gregorian chant, the Roman school of polyphony, the list goes on, and get all those guys together, document all our ideas and implement that agenda, and everything will go back to normal. We'll have our sense of the sacred back, We'll have our piety back. We'll have our reverence back. Now, this second delusion, or this second half of the same delusion, which is to just blame the the Second Vatican Council, um, is I think between the two the more dangerous because it repeats the mistake of the first, which is to reduce the whole battle of the of the sense of the sacred to reduce the whole Uh, battle for the sanctuary to reduce the whole battle of the liturgy to its aesthetic dimension and say basically all that went wrong was we cheapened our aesthetics. So all we need to do now is get all that Ikea wood off the altar and put stone marble, get all the priests out and the deacons out of the polyester vestments and put them back in real cotton fiddlebacks with satin and lace, Get rid of all the guitars, the tambourines, and the, the happy clappy, and restore back Gregorian, and we're fixed. The thing is, as as much as that may imply, as much as that may instill hope in somebody, um, I hate to spoil the hope of that solution by saying one need not look farther if they're looking for an example of exactly that, which is a restoration of all things aesthetic, but not substantial one need not look farther than the high anglican church or even the high lutheran church Um, these particular denominations place enormous value on aesthetics enormous value on reverence, and in some cases depending on the persuasion uh, even still practice gregorian chant and even sing in latin Uh, they use incense they have uh, the same kind of architecture romanesque and and so forth so it's po- it is possible to reduce the whole wealth of the liturgy to its aesthetic components and then say there's the problem so there's the solution and that's what i think happens when somebody traces everything back to the second Vatican council
0: the issue of inspiration how would you speak on that versus what was was inspiring some of this music that we hear in mass today versus what was the source of inspiration for some of the older forms of music that we heard in the liturgy that you spoke about that you learned at universities and as an undergraduate and a graduate student?
1: So to, to simplify, perhaps at the risk of oversimplifying, the inspiration of the composition of music that has been accepted as genuinely, genuinely and sincerely sacred is always the same. It's contemplative prayer. So uh, Gregorian chant is the one genre, the, the single genre among all that is truly the church's own actually unique music. Every other type of music we do is somehow borrowed. But Gregorian shows up no place other than in the monastic and the liturgical setting. Because it's a a music that naturally arises from contemplative prayer. And it's important uh, to remember that by contemplative, I don't just mean uh, reminiscing in one's thoughts and emotions. Okay, I mean more in the sense of like John of the Cross would use or Thomas Aquinas would use, which is to say you're actually getting your own emotions and your own ego to the best of your ability out of the way so that you can be filled with the Holy Spirit and it exercises through cooperative grace the music that you write. Now, compare that to the most popular alternative, which is inspiration based on emotion, specifically the subjective emotion of the individual. And uh, so this would be, Uh, This would be basically the the inspiration behind all theatrical music, the inspiration behind all uh, dramatic and melodramatic music, the inspiration behind movie scores. Because in all of these cases, of these profane cases, the objective is to capture and exude a certain emotion. But that requires that the ego become engaged, that the appetites become engaged. And this gets in the way, literally... It's like a vow that closes off contemplative prayer and replaces it with a different energy source. In order to be contemplative, we actually have to transcend our own emotions. It's such a difficult thing to do that it's not even something we do. It's the Holy Spirit does that. If it merits, if it decides, then we're blessed with such a encounter. Otherwise, we rely on our own emotions to write music. So throughout the church's history, and i mean the whole history in fact this goes back farther even than the christian church it goes all the way back to the creation of the golden calf all right when it comes to the sense of the sacred the emotions and the subjective emotions of the individual have always been right at bay with genuine contemplative prayer right at bay and the holy spirit the church in, in various ways has worked and striven to keep it there so it doesn't take over but in modernity I would say starting around the 19th century with uh, the advent of highly subjective music, music that is highly emotional, uh, and more importantly, highly subjective composers and, and emotional egos and the birth of the diva in music. This became such a strong, gained such a strong stranglehold on the culture that even composers of the church succumbed. And they conceded their contemplative vocation to a more, emotional one. And the music of the mass uh, began very rapidly to become informed by this, and then it became a giant one-upmanship of who can write the most emotionally basking music. Um, The leader at this point of inspiration goes from being the Holy Spirit to the opera house. Richard Wagner, for example, in the 1800s, had such a strong influence over Catholic composers like Anton Bruckner, who had an open, admitted admiration for, uh, Wagner's so great, it evinces to an inferiority complex in himself as a devout, pious, Catholic composer. So that he starts imitating Wagnerian opera in his setting of the mass. Then times change, opera becomes a little more... Uh, dated, uh, but then comes along Broadway theater, and the same exact machinations happen there. We start to see music composed that resembles Broadway theater. Uh, In 1955, the song, Let There Be Peace on Earth, for example, still one of the most popular songs in a variety of denominations, uh, is quite obviously derived from a a Broadway musical. Uh, Then, what comes next? Hollywood, the perfection of cinema, and the movie score with that. And that's the one that I think, especially throughout the 80s and the 90s, you can see the influence of all these Eucharistic hymns, Be Not Afraid, uh, Here I Am, Lord, I Am the Bread of Life, uh, the, uh, Behold the Lamb, all of which are derives from Disney princess ballads. And that's why if you're at communion and you hear that kind of song being performed, you feel like, oh, this is very sweet, very sentimental. Very, that's exactly what it's supposed to be. Its objective is to pluck at your emotions, not necessarily allow you to pray.
0: And as you were speaking about that, I was thinking about another, another form of art. And I think all art is done well when it imitates nature in, in some sort of way. We we see this especially with, with paintings that imitate nature. They 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 tap into the the golden ratio, the Fibonacci. That there's these proportions to things that that when we, and when we speak to those proportions in art, they're beautiful, and because they're mathematical, you know, music picks up on this. As well, but as you were speaking about this trajectory from the you know, 1900s up until the 80s and summed up a forbancy type of music, "The Here I Am, Lord," and I was thinking about how that type of experience during worship is so distracting, but in in that way, it reminds me of an art form. Some do not call arts that emerged in the late 1900s, early 20th century. That was the abstract art. And it's in you know, some popular people, maybe Jackson Pollock, people will remember, he was famous for just throwing a bunch of painting paint on a canvas and just whatever happens, happens. And he called that art. And the problem with that is art, one, it, it doesn't imitate nature. But most importantly, you know, it doesn't have the ratios, but most importantly is that when people look at it, no one comes to the same conclusion. You ha- you take 20 people, James, and they look at 20 different, you know, they'll, they'll come up with 20 different things that they find interesting about the painting. They'll, they'll come up with 20 different points that's that their eyes are focused on. In this way, I'm thinking about the liturgy now in some of the older liturgies and how in the liturgy itself, Everyone knows where to look. It's the altar. It's the point of sacrifice. I don't care whether it's a Romanesque or it's a, another type of building, Gothic. I don't care how high the ceilings are, how small we feel. We always come back to that point of the elevation, um, the point of sacrifice. It's it's beautiful in that way. And now I'm thinking about our liturgy that we have today, post-Vatican II, the Novus Ordo, where... In a lot of churches, and a, and a lot of different expressions of liturgy, we tend to lose focus. What am I supposed to focus on? Is it the priests? Is it the, uh, the the Eucharistic ministers? Is it the choir over here to the right? I'm kind of distracted. What's going on? Where do I look? And in the same way, I would say about abstract art, I would call the Norvis Ordo in a lot of lot of expressions of it abstract liturgy because it's distracting i lose my focus and so this is what i'm thinking about when when you're speaking about the music so would you so taking all those words i put together this idea of abstract liturgy and is is there such a thing would you say as abstract liturgical music in that way
1: absolutely and um It's an interesting uh, irony of the developments of the last 50 years that those pioneers of the newer forms of worship uh, claimed to be championing a a more accessible liturgy, a more accessible music, a more accessible environment, and uh, did so in the name of utility and function. The two big champions of this uh, school of thought were Karl Rahner and Herbert Vorgremler. Karl Rahner was a Jesuit priest, and Vorgremler was a lay theologian. They both contributed to the German editorial commentary uh, for the benefit of German bishops after the council ended. Um, But they're also refuted in 1986 by uh, then Cardinal Ratzinger in his uh, essay, Das Festes Glauben, the Feast of Faith. So again, this is 1986. It's about you know we're we're, we're looking at about 30 years, 20-30 uh, years removed from the Council, and so there's been time by then for a whole sort of a comprehensive survey of all the developments to be evaluated. It's like, all right, we've had 30 years to experiment with all these new things that are supposedly going to make the liturgy more accessible, more relevant to the general populace, more inclusive. How are we doing with all of that? And uh, what, what, what Cardinal then Ratzinger uh, concluded was the complete opposite had happened. In the name of utility and function, it had become, as you described, esoteric. Um, and the irony of that is that these guys like Rahner and Vordringler were claiming that it was the, the, the musical and liturgical forms of the previous centuries that had established themselves as the esoteric ones. And we're in need of simplifying and uh, kind of, they were the wheel that needed to be reinvented. So it's ironic that in the end, uh, this attempt to make things a little simpler, a little clearer resulted in exactly what you described, which is distraction and a lack of focal point. And I might add that, I like how you mentioned the golden ratio. Not not everybody talks about that. I'm impressed you bring it up because it informs everything I do as a musician, but uh, uh, we, it's a good point, perhaps, to recall the three attributes of beauty that Thomas Aquinas reminds us you have to have, and that's proportion, uh, clarity, and integrity. And when you're like you're describing, you're in a mass, it's distracting and you're not sure where to look, that argues you've got a conspicuous absence of at least one of those attributes, which is clarity. So that's the irony that these big baroque churches for centuries, with all the details, and with all the cherubs and with all the floral patterns, you still walk in and your eyes go right to the tabernacle. So in the midst of great complexity, there's still clarity. And in uh, the irony of our age is that in an attempt to simplify all that, we've actually made things more confusing.
0: So I've been to the Institute Crest King Sovereign Priest where you're the director of music. And what impressed me so much about the compositions that you're composing there is that at least it's been my experience that our worship there is elevated or supported or um, inspiration is added to what is being presented in the liturgy. So the music isn't distracting rather it's in a way accentuating it's like moving through me and lifting me up. So, and you mentioned earlier about the Gregorian chant, which I thought was fascinating that it's the music of the church in the same way as like Paul, when he's writing some of his letters, Some sometimes some of the words he uses, we don't see anywhere else in the Greek, like the, theonutos is one word he just like made up. We don't see it anywhere else. That's just a word of the church that's just the word of the scriptures it's, it's unique to that in the same way that the gregorian is i thought that was beautiful but you said it was con- contemplative that's his source of inspiration so when it comes back to you and your work how how do you do that in your i mean pope benedict you know he said oh i, I do theology on my knees you know and it's, it's obvious how do you do music?
1: Well, this is a good point to uh, mention the, the role of authority, I think is the word I want, um, because music in the Mass is has been referred to as the handmaiden to the liturgy, uh, which is a way of trying to say that no matter what happens, the music never takes over the focal point it's always in service to something greater than itself and uh, when you this circling back to uh, the first thing I said about secular institutions preserving the sacred music this is what this is the big thing they lose so while secular institutions may do a better job aesthetically of both performing and teaching the idioms of sacred music they don't have a tabernacle and they don't have a real presence so what it, what we have in the church is this uh situation where the music at any moment could just as it's related it's it's a very thin line between musical expression and the ego it could take over and at all times it's kept at bay even if you're like this trying to keep it there um but but this is in regard to an authority um uh, this is in regard to that we are in the real presence, so we don't have the right to usurp uh, that. Um, uh, so I think in answer to your question, how do we accomplish it? Well, we we keep that in mind at the very least. But then second, um, we also try to, I'm actively here at uh, St. Francis de Sales in St. Louis. We do an annual music festival, which is a, an attempt to, on my part, a very modest attempt when compared to the big institutions to try and get some of this orchestral uh, sacred music back under the roof so that people can experience what these pieces that like my friend experienced, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the interview, in a concert setting can actually experience in front of the Blessed Sacrament so that it doesn't take away anything from the music. On the contrary, however great you thought this music was in a vacuum, whether you're listening to it as a recording while you work out or you're driving a car, however great you thought it was there, it's only augmented when it is put in a secondary position in service to the liturgy and to the Blessed Sacrament, as opposed to the main focal point. And that's kind of a surprise to people. They, they might think, oh, if it's played at Mass, you know, the orchestra is all the way in the back. You can't even see them. And there's all this other stuff happening. There's a Mass happening. There's all these other liturgical actions. And the music is now the afterthought. It's taken off. The, the spotlight is taken off of it. And the, the sanctuary is what's in the foreground, so the, the, the key, I think, is that the music never takes the place of the focal point. It never becomes the thing we worship. But, not to drag on and on, and on but remember what I said about the, the golden calf, okay? Uh, the golden calf, remember how it was created? They took the finest of what they had, the gold jewelry everybody gave the finest of what they had and then they burnt it, a form of sacrifice, okay, they melted it down and then created a thing of high artistic value, a golden calf. So it's a very thin line between the the wielding command of the aesthetics and actual worship. So I kind of again, fall back on what I was saying earlier about be careful about reducing the whole thing to just having the prettiest of everything. Uh, You must always have that blessed sacrament as the center of what you're doing um, and not just the aesthetics.
0: I have two more questions. One is short. One is, um, I guess, a bigger question. I do want to ask you because you did answer in this lesson that you're giving, how do we get here in a way you answered in just in this part. Where do we go from here? Um, but I do want to ask you, you know, my question after this one. Like, what do we lose along the way? Like this, this, this trajectory that you 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 put forth. But I was wondering, just just a quick question here. I just want to get your thoughts because I know some some of your students just may want to just probably thinking it themselves because it, it is rather common. What do you, what comes to mind to you, James? When because you, you talked about when music in the Mass takes over, when it becomes the source of worship, is that what happened, say, at the end of Mass, after the procession, and people just start clapping? Is that what happened?
1: I think, yes. I think that in particular is a is a symptomatic of an egalitarianization of the liturgy, where everybody's supposed to be included and involved and by everybody i mean well beyond the ministry of the hierarchy of the church so you've got you know perhaps in a former uh, setting it would have been understood you have a priestly celebrant who's in persona christi you might have a higher form of the mass have a deacon a subdeacon and so forth but after we egalitarianized everything and made it so that now you've also got Aunt Lucy, Uncle Joe, the girl servers you mentioned, the, the boy servers you mentioned, the choir, they're all like treated all, on an equal footing as the priest himself. And so the way that's shown is in this, uh, like everybody gets their veneration, but I think that that's more a result of the egalitarianization of the liturgy than it is of just a worship of music because it, it, it rarely limits itself to the music. I, I know exactly what you're talking about and it's usually like a whole running of the credits at the end of the movie it's like we want to thank our ushers we want to thank our people who did the readings we want to thank our aunt lucy for being aunt lucy whatever aunt lucy's doing at any given time decorating the flowers and then the choir of course is included in that but i think that's more part of a larger problem which is the breakdown of the vertical hierarchy of the church and the creation of this sort of democratic church where everybody is a priest. Yeah.
0: I appreciate your answer there. It's sort of consistent to what you said earlier when I posed you the, the Vatican II thing. It's not rarely you said, can we just point our finger at one thing? It's usually not not that vacuum. So I appreciate that answer. What do we lose along the way? Because um, you, you lay forth a trajectory going all the way back to um, the French Revolution um, up until the 1980s and, and and beyond that. So what do, what do we we what have we lost along the way when it comes to us recognizing that what's taking place at the mass that's that's sacred, but also sacred is everything that that comes from God. We can po- go back to art again. It's a reason why you know baby pictures people always fawn over. Um, nature, you know, people see flowers and, you know, even, you know, cat pictures on Facebook or whatever, you know, there's a reason why people smile at things. Cause I think it just in, internally is intrinsically, we recognize gifts from God. We recognize this sacred, but this distortion of the sacred, especially in, in this truly sacred space, the liturgy, what have we lost by um especially in liturgical music by not by becoming abstract what, what have we lost along the way do you think
1: well for one thing the papal states that's kind of a joke uh but no i i, I let me connect it from humor to a real uh, what i'm getting at there because another thing we lost uh, and i i'm going to sound for a moment like i'm diverting away from music but i'm going to bring it back. We lost the, the Roman Catholic parish. And by that, I mean, we lost the territory canonically designated as parish, which would have formerly and historically been an intersection of all the things we're talking about and more art, but also education, business, residence, economy, entrepreneurship, and deterrent power, that is security, and all in the name of the Catholic church. Um, parishes have sort of, uh, Dissipated for a variety of reasons, but the the from a demographic perspective, Catholics have just moved. They've left uh, historic neighborhoods, and instead of creating new ones, new sort of like Catholic neighborhoods, they've joined suburbia, which is a sort of a cross-section of all kinds of lifestyles and everybody going after the American dream. Um, but in in the in the process, we lost a sense of the holistic and now are um, much more quick, to when we measure things like the liturgy or music, to jump again to those aesthetics and just say, that's what we need to fix, turning a blind eye to what might, what might change if we did as Catholics live on the same block? If we did actually form a holistic society again, uh, how might that change the way things look? It just never gets brought up. Uh, but In regards to what did we lose along the way? That's a huge piece Because that means without what used to be what you might call a boots-on-the-ground community, which is to say Catholics who live in community, which is another way of describing a parish, what got lost was the means by which our culture is transmitted. So now, and I admire you for doing what you're doing, um, but the reality is this is how we do it now. The World Wide Web. We have to, this is how we connect with other Catholics, retreat centers. Um, You have now, I think, an upward trend of majority of young Catholics uh, within the past 10, 20 years are finding their spouses through a dating app. Not a Catholic community. Now, they might both be two Catholics that end up somewhere, but that means spousehood is even being secured by the World Wide Web. This Catholic faith, which used to be its own civilization, So, we're getting back in a hurry, I think. There's a, especially the past 15 years or so, with the initiatives of groups like the Fraternity of St. Peter and the Society of Pius X and the Institute of Christ the King and any number of other independent priestly initiatives to say, offer the Latin Mass in their diocese. um, Those initiatives have gotten a lot of people very interested in tradition and in sacred music of an older era. And everybody wants involved in that, everybody wants a dog in that fight but not so many people want to restore a holistic Catholic civilization They just want to do the religious part and Catholicism unlike other Christian denominations was never meant to be merely a religion it's a civilization that has a religious component so what did we lose along the way I would be grossly negligent if I didn't acknowledge it was the main means of transmitting our culture which includes our music gone so now I have to do it with classes courses lecture series you know but it used to be something that was palpable daily you know just immersed daily by accident people just grew up in their catholic didn't even know what they had that's what happens when you uh, create a community based first on territory and then other things after that Uh, so that's the, the first thing the second thing within that which more directly related to the liturgy is we lost our men okay we kept our males but we didn't necessarily keep our men so what i mean by that is and i i deal with this directly in choirs music and you may already know this but if you didn't know choirs in general are female dominated if you go look at the middle school situation the high school situation the collegiate situation girls join choirs. It's just kind of what they do. And the boys who do are, in some cases, real good strong men, but a lot of cases, like, missing in action in terms of their masculinity. They're kind of these soft, sensitive, musical, artistic types. I can say that because I've been through all this. Okay, so uh, I'm not trying to make fun of my fellow male musicians. I'm just saying a lot of them are very effeminate, weak dudes. It's just... So women end up not only populating choirs, but dominating them. They end up running them, and guys will come into choirs, uh, give it a shot, and they'll immediately be intimidated by the female presence because they're like, I don't stand a chance. Uh, the, the female voices—it um, it is easier to make the treble and the high-pitched voices clearer sounding melodically than it is a man, who's, especially if he's going through his voice change as a teenager. So it's a, a, dealing with male singers is harder. It takes longer to get them to sound good. Um, as a result, a lot of choir directors don't have the patience for it, and they exacerbate the problem. So we end up with a situation where choirs, and this includes church choirs, are feminized. We just don't have a masculine investment. And I won't say it's the women's fault. I'm not blaming feminism. I'm saying that uh, feminization happens when a man relinquishes his masculinity. It doesn't. It, it, no woman can take it from him. That's the whole lesson of Samson and Delilah uh she doesn't just go and take his hair she has to prod and what is it what is it and then he gives it to her so that's another thing we lost music became this thing that even to this day is still largely perceived as a a girly or effeminate activity most self-respecting men don't want anything to do with it because they agree with that they think "Ah, i'm going to go into sports and when you look at the mass even in the traditional setting you see a predominant sort of attitude of uh, boys become altar servers girls become choir members you mentioned it earlier this idea that we got the girl altar servers, well it's like okay maybe it's good that in some settings we don't have that problem but we have another problem this idea that that's what the boys do the girls do the music so we end up with a feminized church choir So that's another thing we lost was the the masculine investment of the choirs. That's something, if if it's all right, that I sort of toot my own horn here. I'm very proud of, here at DeSales, I'm very proud of the men we have, because we have very invested men here. Um, And when I say invested, I mean they take a leading role in it. They're not just along for the ride. They're not intimidated by female musicians. Um, And as a result, we're able to do a lot of fine and sublime men's music here but I I acknowledge also that it's sort of the exception to the rule, predominantly choirs, including church choirs, including traditional church choirs are still predominantly feminized.
0: Mr. James Mark, thank you for this catechesis and instruction on sacred
1: music. My pleasure.